Hey, welcome to the Knowles 24-7 podcast. This is Brendan Sinone in the car with Chris Snee. This is extremely dangerous. One, because Chris isn't a fantastic driver. I'm not trying to be mean. I think that's just fact. Right? Is that fair? Yeah, my uh, driving record would prove that true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's sometimes, uh, sometimes your record says exactly what you are and you can't really debate it. Which brings us to Florida State football right now. We are we're somewhere in between Moultrie and Omega, Georgia as we're driving back uh, from Clemson to Tallahassee and, and the Seminoles are fresh off their uh, their sixth loss of the what's been a disappointing and disastrous 2017 campaign. Uh, FSU lost 31-14 to Clemson and uh, let's start Chris. The, the team had its chances. Uh, it did. Uh, it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, we thought it could get ugly and it never really did until Clemson pulled away at the very end. What, I guess, did you take away from the game in terms of uh, the way the team performed, executed, effort, I guess? What did FSU do to give itself a chance? What did you like? What didn't you like? I thought the effort was good. They had a chance in the first half there to kind of fold up a 10 and go home early, and they didn't. Yeah. And they were abysmal offensively in the first half. I'm not going to harp on it too much, but, you know, you have 46 yards of offense at the half, 23 rushing, 23 passing, one first down in the second quarter. They just they couldn't do anything they went in the locker room, and that offense had been non-existent. But they were still in a position where they were in a competitive game. And, you know, the open ear, ear bo- or press box at Clemson gives you a uni- it was unique cold. vantage point. The minute it's 17-14 and FSU forces that turnover and gets it, that fan base was kind of like, oh, what the hell's happening here? Dude, they were shocked. And, and, and the other side of that uh, is Florida State. And we could see they were dancing around. Oh, yeah. They were... It was as excited as we've seen the group since Alabama in the season opener. It was the first time they looked like there was legitimate hope and excitement. Yeah. Without, outside of a couple guys. You know, we see Derwin James stand strong. This was contagious. Yeah, there was juice before the game, yeah. but it was mostly from the younger guys. You saw essentially the entire defense into it at that point late in the game, and it was good to see it. And we talked to Brian Burns, Derwin James, a few others after the game, and they all kind of spoke on that, how they were loser, more comfortable, more confident, kind of more into it than they had been for a – majority of this season and that that's something that you can see if you watch that sideline which we tend to get in the sideline watching you definitely notice it but you know as quick as the fan base was stunned and sort of worried that they were in a tight game and it could go either way next play is the interception and you know that place comes uncorked and I think we all kind of knew after that interception that the defense and the offense had had their chances yeah and you know there were things predating that the turnover obviously the audit tape fourth and two that went off his fingertips and Jimbo, and Jimbo dropped his knees yeah. like he was William Defoe and uh Defoe whatever yeah and platoon <laughs> to steal somebody's post on the message board no and uh also obviously the Nyquan Murray long pass down the sideline that definitely looked like a chance early in the fourth quarter once those chances had kind of passed you knew this was probably not going to turn out in FSU's favor mm-hmm. there was an effort they cared they are what they are. They have their warts. Their offense really struggles to put any kind of meaningful drives together consistently. Defensively, it was probably their best performance start to end since the Bama game. Agreed. But they still have issues. I mean, they, they were not going to be able to – they're not elite defense in the sense where they're going to go out and get stop after stop after stop and somehow keep you in a game that you don't deserve to be in. Yeah. And that's what you saw after that turnover. So that's kind of what I took away from it. I expected them to lose. I expected the margin to be around 10. So it wasn't a drastic departure from when I walked into Memorial Stadium expecting to see. And I don't really like, I'm not going to bang the drum real hard either way. That game. Turn left onto (laughs) Veterans Parkway North. As I said, we we are driving. We are driving in the car. That game turned out sort of how I expected at the end of the day. 
Yeah, kind of, I think we both had a 10-point loss for Florida State, and frankly, it was kind of right there, and then they get the backdoor touchdown, which, which by the way, put the over the over the spread, and FSU is now 0-8-1 against the spread this season, which is pretty crazy that, that Vegas hasn't. I believe they're the only team in the country that has not beat the spread on a single occasion <laughs> just, this year. There's a, there's a lot of inexplicable numbers and stats and, and just anecdotes that we can get to this season, uh, and maybe even in this podcast as we kind of ramble on here and finish off our, uh, our road trip. But, uh, you know, the one thing that, that you mentioned, maybe we could work work back towards for it is is that interception that James Blackman throws and I want to talk about James Blackman and his performance uh, because we knew it was going to be a rough day for him it wasn't going to be easy at the very least Clemson has one of the best pass rushes in the country uh, but you know we, we were there at kickoff uh, and you're looking at the sideline and you notice that Dexter Lawrence isn't uh, isn't dressed out and you know not that he's their top pass rusher but he's the top interior defensive lineman probably in the country he forces the opposition to focus so heavily yeah. on him that it frees up a lot of other really good talent up front for that Clemson Precisely. So, so you're seeing that and you're saying, okay, well, that may help out a little bit, even though they have uh, some depth up front. Who's the big guy that you like uh, for Clemson? Uh, well, on the ends, I really like both uh, Pharrell and Brian. And Brian but on the yeah. interior, um, they went to Albert Huggins to replace That's right, Huggins that you like. You like Huggins is going to be yeah. a damn good player for them down the road. He was a really talented recruiter kid they really liked and. He's one of those guys who would already be doing big things in the conference if he wasn't behind the Dexter Lawrence. So, you know, we see that and kind of remind you that FSU had BC a couple weeks ago without Harold Landry, and a week or two before that at Louisville, they had um, uh, Nojair Alexander, and those are both, you know, the, the top you know, draft prospects on each of those respective teams. Harold Landry's one of the best defensive ends in the country. Jair Alexander's a really good cornerback. Uh, so FSU, for all the poor breaks and injury, you know, bad injury luck that they've had, especially uh, on offense and at quarterback, DeAndre Francois, the wide receivers, not being 100% just about ever, uh, offensive line. Um, they've had some breaks. You know, Again, you don't really replace a starting quarterback, uh, but, but they've had breaks. But anyways, none of it really seemed to matter because Clemson's pass rush, rush was still really, really good. Uh, they, I think they sacked Blackman five times off the top of my head. Yeah, five times. Chris throwing up the five, you remembered. Um, some of those were on Blackman just holding on to the ball too long. He did not look comfortable. Some of that was on the offensive line just not giving him a chance. It was, I, I thought, just not good all around. Uh, FSU, I like that they were kind of aggressive, taking some shots downfield, but they didn't really blend it with anything else, I thought, early on in the first half. Uh, you had the trick play that Jimbo Fisher called in the second half. Uh, th- there were opportunities on offense. They were aggressive. I will, I will credit Fisher for that. Uh, but as we look in the context of James Blackman, man, like, my concern is not as this season winds down and you're fighting for the bowl game, and, and it is kind of what it is at this point. It's, it's a disappointing season no matter how you slice it. Um, I worry about what James Blackman can be in the future and what he's going to be. I wonder, you know, Jimbo likes to say sometimes you can wreck a guy uh, before you, you make him. And he was thrown into the fire. He showed some potential. He's regressed. And I know he's played some really good defenses. Uh, but he just looked kind of jittery out there, and it's going to set up a really tough uh, scenario for him moving forward uh, of, I guess, how you can build confidence when he's just getting beat into the ground like he has been. I worry about what he is, not just at the end of the season, but what he is in, in 2018, and if he's a guy you can legitimately build with because of the growing pains he's had. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat at this point. I feel like he's a guy that's very shaken, very shook, um, seeing ghosts to you know, steal a term that somebody used last night that I thought was definitely pertinent to the situation. He he doesn't make very good 
in-between decisions. It's either an immediate decision or a decision where he does have the blocking, he has the time, and he's able to kind of go vertical. Those are good decisions. But those decisions where the first option isn't there and he has to make a quick second thought and get rid of it, he's been really poor at. A lot of clutching, a lot of grabbing, a lot of holding, a lot of stepping up into pressure, yeah. having a lack of a feel for the pocket, and he's also been miserable at checkdowns. And I don't know if that's him, the design of the offense. I don't know specifically where to point that finger. But there are instances where he'll have a swing option or a guy just sitting underneath the zone, and he's still looking vertical or taking the sack instead of just getting rid of it and taking what's there. There were things given to him by Clemson's defense, a very aggressive bunch under Brett Venables, that he just wasn't willing to take. And that was true throughout the entire game. Mm -hmm. Early in the game, a lot of vertical pushing it down the field. I didn't really understand that. Truthfully, I thought a quicker underneath passing attack, kind of sort of what you saw FSU employ against Alabama, would have played pretty well. They didn't really go to that. They did that a bit more in the second half, but then they abandoned the run because they were down a couple scores. <laughs> and Jimbo even spoke about that in the post game. He was asked, I believe, by Irish of fellow Warchant, um, you know, basically going away from Cam. And he said, well, we were down three scores at that point or two scores and felt like we had to, felt like we had to throw it. And I, I'm not of that belief. I think that you can run the ball so effectively and kind of speed up your offense and play with a little more sense of urgency mm-hmm. when you're still in a game that, you know, you should still have four to five more possessions when you come out of locker room. No matter how slow Clemson plays, you're going to still touch that ball at least four or five more times. Jimbo was worried about the number of possessions. With the fact that this offense isn't very good at putting things together, I would worry more about trying to put something together than the number of possessions. Get get yourself seven points and then worry about the next points. Don't don't think about we need 21 points. Think about let's go score seven. I think that's sort of a mentality that's been lacking in the offensive play calling and offensive attack through the year. But I also think the offensive play calling and attack is handcuffed largely by having a freshman quarterback and a subpar offensive line. And there, there's not a whole lot of reliable weapons. Uh, analogy I made last evening is on third down and short passing situations, like a five to seven passing situation mm-hmm. for Clemson, they can draw a lot of things up. But at the end of the day, you know they have Hunter Renfro, yeah. who they can rely upon and go to. With On and Tate dinged up, I don't know if FSU has that guy that they know they can dial up and go to. I think Izzo is a guy who I feel like should be that kind of option, but it hasn't proven true this year. And I, th- I think that's something this offense severely lacks. It's sort of a consistent safety valve they can call upon. Well, an identity. They just haven't had an identity. We thought we saw that in the Duke game, and maybe that was fool's gold because it was something that just worked in that game, in that context, and, and it worked with what they had with James Blackman. It complemented with the, the running backs well. Uh, we saw them run out of the pistol a lot. We saw them roll out in the pocket and, and give Blackman easy throws to make. Um, and, and in hindsight, like maybe we were wrong in assuming that that was either something that was going to be able to work all the time or that Jimbo was going to stick to it. I, I'm not sure which one it was. It doesn't seem to me like when we do our sideline watching, when we see Jimbo Fisher just his head into his playbook or into those play sheets and, you know, his big laminated giant, they look like, like a like a, like a a lunch tray size. And he's got like five, he's got a handful of them. He's skimming through, skimming through, and it takes you know, five, six seconds for him to kind of go through it, and he finds it. He calls it into you know, Randy Sanders and Dossie to make their hand signals into the play. And he's just searching for something. It doesn't seem like there's any kind of flow in his mind. Uh, and I think that's a direct reflection on how he feels about his quarterback. 
I, when he feels confident with his quarterback, he, he starts getting in rhythm. He said that after the Duke game. When he feels like his guy can go and execute it, he can get in a rhythm as a play caller. Yeah. There's just absolutely no confidence. And without us being able to be in that huddle or being each practice, like I don't know where the disconnect comes, whether it's Blackman can't execute what Fisher wants him to, if Fisher's asking too much from Blackman. History and just life experience would tell me it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, but, but there's clearly some kind of lack of confidence that Fisher has in Blackman, and that has just kind of stymied this entire offense. And I think that's somewhat of an indictment upon Fisher. Fisher's a little obsessed with perfection of offense. A little? He, yeah, just a tad. He. He's a guy that relishes the lengthy drives, the 8, 10, 12, 14 play drives that produce points, that have a lot of highly efficient parts, a lot of things have to come together for it to work. And this offense simply is sort of incapable of doing that. In recent weeks, they've been far more of a haymaker offense. I know it's a term I like to use way too much, but it's true. They're a big play offense, a couple big runs by Cam last week, big pass by Blackman last week, big pass to Izzo this week. Those are examples of that. That is sort of what they are, and in the first half, I felt like they were almost trying to be that with pushing it downfield so much. Yeah, that's why I was, that's why I was okay. Shut up, Siri. But I feel like you also have to have balance, and you have to have sort of a plan of attack. At some point, they have to figure out what Blackman is capable of and what they simply need to throw the hell away that doesn't work for the game. I'm saying is he's looking through this giant just assortment of plays like man you got to slow it down and a little bit and, he and has said he has scaled it back and i believe uh, he, sure has he has scaled it back, scale it back sure. more yeah it's almost at the point where you have to be a very beer bones almost kind of a vanilla yeah, I mean, yeah a, it's... not a very impressive offense but something that's going to be able to generate enough points where if you're playing a capable opponent you can try to play keep up you're gonna run a lot because of different currently con- they can't keep up with anybody that can score more than 20 points no once once i mean the fact that was so impressive they got down by 17 and the defense kept them in it and gave them a chance but that was i thought when they were down by 17 that was going to get really ugly it kind of the game went in the exact opposite. Uh, it went in the exact opposite direction that I thought. I thought they were gonna be able to kind of hang around Turn early, fast, slow things down, maybe north. kind of hit a hit a big play or two, and then you know then Clemson would pull away. It kind of went the exact opposite. But but yeah, you're right. Once the team really can get some cushion, this offense miles. struggles. Yeah, and there, was, there was certainly a point in the first half where. <laughs> Wait, real quick. I, for, for the record. There's like a 10% chance people are going to be able to hear you, like you get a speeding ticket because there's just police officers everywhere. We're, we're clearly on the road traveling. I'm, I'm um, being responsible. I'm going three to five over to I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to flow traffic. I'm going to bring up uh, something that gets you coaching changes or staff changes going to get you fired up. You're going to rev it up to 100 at the inopportune nah. time. Nah. But for the record, so, so that our audience is uh, entertained, uh, probably more so than usual, we'll, uh, we'll keep up the audio going as you're getting arrested for... That's fine with me. It's like Live PD, the podcast. <laughs> Ooh, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Patent pending. All right, so so back to the offense. Uh, go ahead, take it from where you were because I interrupted you. I mean, I, I just... Sorry. Reflecting on that game, I thought Blackman struggled mightily. I think it was sort of an indication of FSU doesn't have a whole lot of reliable, dependable parts. Yeah. Um, some of that's injury, some of that's roster development. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's not really something you can single out. I was disappointed that Akers wasn't a bigger part of the attack. I feel like he is a game-breaker. He is a player that's capable of putting points on the board for you. And in the second half, he was very much neutralized by the play calling entirely. And you, you don't even have to run it. I, I believe they should have run it more in the second half than they did. 
but you can have more of a screen game. And I know Brian Greasy was pissing people off on TV, yelling that pretty much constantly. But it is true. You yeah, can it go is. to the screen game. And FSU is a team that practices screens. It is a part of the Jimbo Fisher offense. And it's something in the past he has had immense success with. Other than tunnel screens. Devontae Freeman is a guy that they used to screen the hell out of. Remember opponents. that Miami like, game in 14? They, so, uh, or 13, sorry. They, just, they probably had like six successful plays off of the screen. So I just feel like they... I mean, I get they were going to be conservative. They were going to try to hang around and have a shot, and those things came true. But I also feel like, man, they just that offense. When I watch it, it really against any kind of formidable opponent, it can't score more than twenty points. I mean, it has, it, you know, in part of this, like going back, Chris, because you mentioned you know the injuries, you mentioned you know player development, roster development. Those are all factors, and it's impossible. Like I think sometimes people want to point it to one thing. It's it's a it's a combination of uh, it's a myriad of factors, and they all kind of build on each other. Like the roster, like look at the quarterback position. Well, the injury to De- DeAndre Francois screws you over for this season. I don't think this team is great with DeAndre Francois. We've seen like, I mean, against Alabama, they only score seven points. I certainly think they're bowl eligible. They are. They are at this point because the way Jimbo Fisher calls the game is going to be more confident. You had an entire offseason to, to build an offense around a guy. But, again, Alabama, they score seven points against them. I think six other teams have scored more against Alabama this season. So it wasn't like you were going to go out and be a juggernaut on offense. You were going to be better. You weren't going to be this where you're nearly half of your statistical standings nationally is in 120 or worse. Like, yeah. you're, you're not putrid. Fisher's certainly frustrated. We, yeah. we talk to him enough. We look at him enough. We watch him enough on the sideline. We watch him operate within the machine. He looks like me after the end of the 2014 season when I was just – I mean, not, he, not a healthy human being. He looks happens. like a guy that's not sleeping well at night, yeah. pulling his hair out quite often, and doing things in practice that he feels like he can rely on Saturday, and then Saturday comes and it fails him. Yeah. And that's tough. I mean, for a guy who's had immense success, who generally throughout his career has had very, very good offenses, and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where year after year, when things don't, I don't want to use the word come easy, but they kind of come natural to a team, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's not there, it's really tough to find those answers. And players referenced that in the end of last night. Brian Burns, you know, brought up inches, which I think we're all pretty sick and tired of hearing inches. But Jim was even tired of saying inches. Yeah. He, and, he said that loud. To his credit, I made fun of him when he was saying inches after the Louisville game because we've heard it so many times. He at least said, I know no one wants to hear inches anymore. Yeah. You're right, and at least he said it. And I inquired to Brian, well, what do you think is preventing you guys from getting essentially that small bit of what you need to get over the hump to have a better record. Mm-hmm. And he legitimately I couldn't come up yeah. with an answer. I mean, I and know. he tried. It's not one of those things where you just brush off the question and want to move on, get on the bus, and head back to Tallahassee. He legitimately didn't have an answer. No one and, knows on this, in this yeah. program right now, and, that, and that's that's tough. I mean, they're, they're in a position where, you know, I, I truthfully think as their psyche goes, they probably came out of the Clemson game feeling a little bit better about themselves as a whole. Now that needs to carry over, and they need to win out in the next three, get bowl eligible, and do what they have to do. That's the reward they're playing for at this point. And I think they're in a better spot today than they were, you know, say Saturday after the BC debacle. Oh yeah. But at the end of the day, they're still, you know, at best they're going to be a six and six regular season team, and they've got a lot of issues they got to resolve in the off season. Six and six for a team that was number three in both, you know, polls and S and P plus. You know, with Bill Connolly had the number two. I mean, this is a team when you look at the recruiting rankings and what they've had. Um, six and six isn't good enough. And yeah. yeah, I know the injuries are part of it, man, but not to six and six. Yeah. I mean, that's 
There's under underperforming all across, especially. Well, but we'll get an under. This isn't a 24-hour podcast, so we can't get into all the issues. Oh, but we have all the way back to Tallahassee. But there are plenty of issues on this team. I mean, there you know, are a lot. Obviously, coaching. There are positions where you can get so much more out of your coaching staff than you're getting. The depth of certain positions, the development of certain positions, the strength and conditioning of this team, the preparation of them in the offseason, the accountability factor. Philosophies on offense, defense. There are so many things you can point to that is abundantly clear that when dust settles on 2017, whether that's December 3rd after ULM or after you go to Shreveport and play UAB in a bowl game, that you know, you're gonna have to figure out what the hell are we doing in the future. There there is a in my opinion, there is a no doubt need for a reset. And that goes from top down. Uh, let's I wanna get to we'll we'll end it on the on the reset and I think think people wanna hear about. Um, let's just, just a little bit more on Clemson and big picture. Um, one thing you said early on in the intro, Chris, was when as we're watching the team prepare for the game, warm up, seeing guys jumping around. You've seen even on the sideline when they're excited, and this was the, by far the most animated the group has been, I think all season, I think it's safe to say. Um, and that kind of carried over from the, the Syracuse win where we saw them feel alive and relaxed. And we saw after the game, you mentioned uh, with with after this Clemson game, there was confidence. I, I think the group uh, was kind of resigned to what they were, um, but it was almost kind of a peaceful resignation, if that makes sense. Did you did you see that? Like with the, you mentioned the way Burns was talking after the game. We saw Matthew Thomas, and he was kind of just, you know, he was frustrated, but he kind of, uh, the moments of post Louisville where they're just devastated are gone. The moment of Boston College where they're just shell shocked and you know feel bad for themselves is gone. This team, I think, kind of knows what they are now. Yeah, um, they were, they were cognizant of the fact that they were a two and a half touchdown dog. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, that was clear. Um, there was a sense of pride. Now, on the flip side of that, it's a bit concerning that it takes being a two-and-a-half touchdown dog against a rival in your conference. To wake you up. Who's sort of running the conference now yep. at this point for you to have that, you know, energy and stuff. But that all goes back oh. to prepping for the season and getting ready and, you know, mentally training the young men that you're going to throw out there on the football field. And it's tough. You're dealing with 18- to 22-year-olds. There is some built-in factors that are just going to be tough to predict, tough to handle. There's a lot of stuff you got to do on the fly, and you're dealing with, you know, 100 personalities on your football team. But I think in so that's general... Where you, that's what you get paid to do. Right. That's, that's every, every, every team in the country is dealing with the same I think in thing. FSU's situation, there there's a clear disconnect. Yeah. There, there's not enough just guys that have it sort of built into them where that confidence exudes upon their teammates and helps create kind of a situation that's positive. Derwin James is a constant with that. Yeah. Auden Tate isn't that vocal outward guy, but the way he plays and performs is. Derek but, Naughty's of the same cloth yeah. as Auden. Yes, and, and uh, that, that type. But I mean, after that, I mean, we start, we go down the list, and then we're going down to the true freshmen. We're talking about the guys that are dancing around before the game that look like they're trying to have fun, guys that are cheering on teammates. It was those rookies, and that's just, you can't, that's not a formula for success. Yeah, and Alec Eberle is a guy who consistently, before kickoff, is fired up, and he's into it, and he's trying to get his teammates He has his physical limitations. But at the same time, I don't know if a message from a guy like Alec Eberle permeates into his teammates, because he then goes out and plays, and obviously has the shortcomings he does as an offensive line. There's only so much you can do. And that, that's not me trying to knock Alec. No. That's me trying to make the point that, you know, Great leaders sometimes are great players, and great leaders are sometimes just great motivators. And in Alex's case, I think the lack of being a great player might hurt his ability to motivate as a guy that's very vocal. Well, the, the 2013 team, like, I mean, that's 
it sucks for FSU because that's always what we're as long as Jimbo Fisher is here. It's that's what it's going to be. Yeah, it is. Um, but one of the reasons was we were talking about this earlier. We say that with Chris's brother, and we were talking to him about it earlier this morning um, before it with confidence, the role it plays. And you look at University of Miami right now, uh, and this is a team that has basically built confidence to become, you know, has turned confidence into reality, which is that they're actually, you know, they're a top five team in the country. Yeah. And we saw Florida State play them. They weren't. Um, that's just you just build confidence, build confidence. On the other side of that token, like Florida State this season just cannot find a way to make a play when it needs to. It's like you just feel like, uh, like against NC State when Derwin James picks off the ball and they call it pass interference. Like if you feel like they could just make one of those plays that could have shifted things and something to build off of, taking it to the leaders of that 2013 team, uh, you had guys that were vocal and that were alpha dogs and that were just men on the football field. Like they were, you had Telvin Smith. You had LaMarcus Joyner, you had Timmy Jernigan, you had Jameis Winston, the guys that you needed to be the leaders that needed to be the best players, that they get fit into itself. Outside of Derwin James, I don't think there's anyone on this roster that's both currently. Yeah. And the ones that maybe are too young to really make an impact. In that same conversation we're talking about 2013, how they came out of the BC game sort of, you know, oh man, the defense trying to figure out what the heck we're doing. Then they walk into Clemson and obviously have the success they have, and it kind of snowballed from that point in a positive direction with this team it's gone the opposite direction mm-hmm. I think the lack of positives to reflect upon in certain situations has kind of built up and you know when you when you constantly talk about how much you suck on third down on both sides of the ball you start realizing in the middle of a game man we kind of suck on third it's down like Levante Taylor just inexplicably grabbed his <laughs> his man and pulled, committed a pass interference Levante Taylor's been he's a guy that I think is on the cusp of of being someone who could be a vocal leader and yeah. a guy who I think next year that could be his role. But I, th- that was an example of a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of these guys just assuming something bad is going to happen and then doing it. Yeah, There's no need to grab them. For example, last week, Levante brought up on the last drive how he had a couple bad plays. Yeah. He brought that up himself. So guys are certainly you know recognizing issues. Mm-hmm. The issue is you know getting past it, building confidence, figuring out how to do it the right way rinse, repeat, do over and over and over and over. And this team's really, they've never been able to do that. They've not been able to figure it out for themselves and build upon it. And that's, you know, an indictment upon players and coaches. I don't think it's solely one or the other. I think it's both. You've got too many veteran players on that FSU defense for that defense to be that bad, even if the coaching is as bad as many people think it might be. Well, that ultimately, and it is on the players. I mean, they have to find ways to be self-motivated. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, there's one man who's in charge of player evaluation, of who you take, who you don't, of how you develop players, how you develop guys in the offseason, uh, the game plans. That's the final saying all. That's Jimbo Fisher. So this all is ultimately just funnels to him. Uh, Chris, you mentioned the, the defense and, and its expectations. I wanted to get your thoughts on this as we kind of are seeing, you know, with three games left, the numbers are going to get better statistically for both the offense and defense. You're playing Delaware State. <laughs> You're playing Florida, which is a bigger dumpster fire than Florida State is right now, although they have the same record. But it just seems like one team at least has something that it kind of hangs on to. The other one is just lost. And you have ULM. So, so your Florida State, you're probably going to pad your stats, and what they are now is not going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to be how it ends. But Florida State right now is like one of the, you know, is a, about the hundredth best offense nationally, and is about the thirtieth best defense probably going to go up a little bit to 25th best defense and maybe yeah, 80th offense. 
which one, which side of the ball would you say has been more disappointing relative to expectations? The <laughs> defense was supposed to be great uh, and has been above average. The offense was supposed to be above average and has just been one of the worst in the country. I think they're both poor. <laughs> yes. You can't, no, you can't. But my answer is the defense okay. because the minute DeAndre got hurt, you, you and mm-hmm. at least in my thought process is, well, they've got a pretty damn good defense. they got a lot of veteran guys, a lot of talent on that side of ball, a lot of capable people, and that that can guide the sh- As they figure things out on the outside of ball, breaking in a new guy, figuring things out on that side of ball, they've got enough on defense that they can carry them, and they did a poor job from that point forward of truly carrying them. Mm-hmm. If FSU's defense played with the effort and ability that they showed against Clemson last night, Throughout the season, this record's flipped. they probably have two more wins. This record, yeah, well, close. Yep, yep. It's you're six and three. And you're five and four. You're. But that's not solely on players. Again, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not in the podcast business to throw crap on players. A lot of FSU's issues are coaching. The I podcast people, business isn't very profitable. I think people that listen to this understand that I think FSU needs massive coaching changes. We're going to get to the... I know. I'm just making that point and talking I'm trying, about I'm the trying defense to, being I'm trying to bait you to get a speeding ticket with, no, a, with no. a crescendo. I'm not angry anymore. Anger <laughs> left my body in mid-October. At this point, I'm, just, I'm playing out the string, man. <laughs> I just need December 3rd to get here. Oh, God. I, I cover a team. I cover recruiting for a team that literally isn't recruiting. Do you know how boring my days are? We're gonna have to cover a freaking bowl game in Shreveport, aren't we? What are you talking about? We. <laughs> There's a reason we hired you. <laughs> I can tell you who isn't driving. Shreveport. I'm not driving anywhere. I'm flying. You're 24/7s. Take me first class. I'm going to Shreveport. Chrome River. That. Um. That's our expense report. Uh. Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. I, I both have been disastrous relative to expectations. Uh, the defense shows glimpses, and every now and then I'm like, all right, you know. But then I also remember, oh yeah, <laughs> this was supposed to be a really good defense, and they've underachieved uh, just just dramatically. So um, the offense, I just I, I think that's not to say though the offense doesn't get let, let off the hook. Like when we realized, yeah, Francois was out for the year. We had that long stretch of time to do some research and do some stories. One thing that I that I did was went back and looked at, I think it was like since 2010. Basically, it was, it was the last, you know, how many teams with that has basically relied on a true freshman quarterback for at least half of the season. I went six starts. Uh, and what those teams were that finished top 25, like what the formula, what the common denominators were. And there were only like three or four teams that have, that have been successful relative uh, with, with the true freshman quarterback. One was Alabama last year with Jalen Hurts. Uh, Baylor a couple years ago with Stidham at quarterback. I can't remember the third off the top of my head, but that, it's a, irrelevant. Uh, basically, one of the things is you needed to have a really, really good defense to, to be kind of complimentary and carry you. That hasn't happened. It's been an okay defense that plays really good in moments, and then uh, below average in others, I think, is kind of what we've seen. You needed a really good run game to help out for the most part. That hasn't happened. It happens in spurts, but uh, Chris, you talked about the, I, I guess, the, sorry, there. I just saw a, a sign for seatbelt track it, or traffic uh, ticket numbers, and I don't think that ever changes. They were saying this last month. I don't think that's changed any time we've driven down here. Anyways, you know, they've abandoned the run uh, too many times, I think, this season. We saw it against Alabama early. We saw it against Clemson. It's almost like, you know, when, when Jimbo gets afraid of, of what his offense can't do, he just completely handcuffs him to throw the ball. Doesn't really work well with a true freshman quarterback. So uh, just both sides of the ball have have been very flawed. And let's get to your big picture, Chris, because I think it's a trickle 
down through the players all the way up to the coaching staff. And yesterday, man, it was such a appropriate backdrop on the season because you're Florida State and you lose to Clemson for the third year in a row, and that game sends Clemson to the ACC championship game. Uh, a few hours later, as we're working in the press box, what game's on TV? Miami's just whooping that Notre Dame butt. Just, just whooping that ass. I'm trying to keep it family friendly. Eh, you're usually the one who breaks uh, from that and, and says shit, so basically your two of your three biggest rivals are just spiking and thriving um, and that should be horrifying if you're Florida State because programs are at their peak when their rivals are at their worst typically. You usually don't see two rivals hitting their stride at the same time. It happens occasionally typically not because you need one you need, Turn right on shut up Siri bypass west. you need one to be down in order to be up to be able to benefit from their flaws we've talked about that before that was a big part of that 2013 championship team and that, that run from 12 to 14 for FSU was UF wasn't particularly great Miami was really bad uh, Clemson was still Clemson you know, at that time uh, you had Alabama and that was about it regionally that you were having to buy for so uh, guess what all that what I'm trying to say is FSU needs to kind of hit the reset and figure out, I mean, one, I don't think Jimbo Fisher's going anywhere. People want this magical, the people that do not want Jimbo. And I think he's done enough to warrant, like, more time. I do, because, well, first off, you have to keep him because of the salary. Unless, you know, Texas A&M flies, you know, in and, and it does, you know, throws ungodly money to get him. Scrooge my ducks. Yeah, it's, it's, this is Jimbo Fisher's program for the foreseeable future. Uh, what I will say is he has earned that based on what he's done in in you know, 2012 to 2014. Uh, the part that's concerning and the part I completely understand, the part that makes me skeptical of what this program becomes in the future is he hasn't shown that he's able to or willing to or see or I, I don't know what, that there are issues, glaring issues within his program as it goes beyond just Charles Kelly as a defensive coordinator. I think it's what people want to harp on, but this is far beyond that uh, and that he hasn't been willing to make them. He has to make him now, right? I mean, that's where we're at. Is if he doesn't, I think the fan base checks out. He's at the point where he has to make him. But, Chris, I guess where do you start looking at changes that need to be made, that should be made, that, that realistically could be, be made? Well, I think the first change is Jimbo needs to change. Jimbo Fisher needs to figure out what the next step of his program is. He's a man that loves harping on the process, and he obviously had a plan when he walked in the door, executed that plan, and it turned out fantastic. But since that moment, it's kind of dwindled down and gone in the opposite direction. I don't think you just repeat what you did the last time around. I don't I, think I don't that think works. Yeah. I don't think your program's in that position. I think there's just a whole different set of circumstances. But I think Jimbo needs to figure certain things out. He needs to figure out how much he wants to be hands-on with the defense. Is he at that point where he wants to hire maybe someone who has a lot of experience as a defensive coordinator who can truly kind of just let go be that guy and let run the defense and let it be that guy's defense? You know, I think he could hire a certain somebody like that, somebody, you know, who he trusts, who he knows. But Trump who, them. <laughs> yeah, a friend of his. Yes. Somebody that... Who he has a lot of respect for and right. is, yeah. Who he knows is capable. Yep. I think that's first and foremost. I think secondly on offense, they got to fix that offensive line. Your offense is only going to go as your offensive line goes, and the FSU offensive line has been a negative impact on that team for three straight years and for a vast majority of Jimbo Fisher's time at FSU. And, and, I, and I, the return on investment is poop there, yeah, too. 
with the amount of, of scholarships that you yeah, pour into you, it. You just, you have, it, it's time. Yep. You have to make a change up front. You have to be better in the trenches as an offensive line. You have to get better talent consistently. You have to do a better job of building that roster with different classes of talent. You know, that huge class was a great thing, but it was also a necessity because they had done a piss-poor job of recruiting position years prior. Yeah. So you have to kind of get those things figured out. I that's going to be tough for Jimbo. Yeah, to, 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 the to, best-case scenario there is that Rick Trickett's ready to retire. But that is Jimbo's boy and has been his boy for a long time, and he has profound respect for him. And, and but Rick, it's a business. It's a job. And that, and well, it's that's, a really, really expensive and, business that a lot of money's invested. And that's so. what Fisher is paid to make that decision. Yeah. But I'm just saying – it's no, easy to sit back and say that. I'm just for the context of it. But yeah. I, I agree that we've, I, we've had that discussion yeah. many a time off of the podcast yeah. here. Yeah, without a doubt. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. But I also am of the opinion that winning football games is the most important thing. Well, that's what he's paid for. He's, so. yeah, that, that's, I mean, we could say, you know, turning you know, boys into men and, and putting a good face on the program. That's all part of it. But ultimately, it's the winning that you're getting paid for. I'm, so, yeah. I'm not going to live the lie that Jimbo Fisher might not call the offense. I'm just not even going to act like that's a possibility because I don't believe it at all, and I don't think Jimbo's Well, he kind of, on his, on his call-in show. This week. You know, people get yeah. mad at us for not asking the tough questions, man. Like, he just doesn't answer any questions. He's so on guard when the media does ask him anything. There's nothing there. It just takes you. You guys want to call in. You ask him the tough questions because he answers. Whenever he is asked about the future of offensive play calling at FSU, he makes it abundantly clear that his fingerprint are going to be the ones firmly upon that. Which is fine. I mean, the fingerprint, Saban's fingerprints are on that defense. He's not calling it all the time, but, you know, he it's his it's his baby. That's I'm fine with that. Uh, but the calling of the plays and having your head down into the playbook when there's other big picture things that need to be absorbed and, and digested, as brilliant of a football mind he is, as he is, I don't think it's possible to be everywhere at once uh, if things aren't going correct. Yeah. I think it's important to get strong-willed, intelligent, aggressive offensive minds in that room with him. He yeah. needs people that he can view as peers and not simply employees. Yeah. I think I think that's what benefits him. He's always going to call it on Saturday, but I think in the game planning stages, it's very important for the people that he's working with to have a strong voice with him, to matter to him. I think the offensive staff as a whole, outside of maybe Tim Brewster, you, you can part with. And Jay Graham, I'd be indifferent on you. If you keep him, good. I think Jay's done a very good job and a good recruiter. His position lives up to its building. If you move on from him, it's running back coaches. You get, good, it's, you get good bang for It's your a position where you can usually too. find talented people that can do an effective job. Mm-hmm. That's not a slight on Jay. It's just how I feel about that position. Um, but I, I think Jay and Tim are two that you might see retain on the staff. But I think after them, you, you kind of start anew on that side of the ball and you try to figure it out and you get people in there that can help you, that can take some of that load, some of that burden off you, so on Saturday you don't have to worry about being a full-time offensive coordinator and a full-time head coach. You can be a head coach who has his hands on the offense. No, I, I agree. And on the defensive side of the ball, I, mean, I think we're on record as saying at, at this point, like I was the last one to get off to Charles Kelly, you know, to, to stop defending him. Um, and again, I think there's a world in which he's a good defensive coordinator. I don't think it is the way, and that's where Jimbo has to, I don't think it's the way that this defense of staff is comprised. He doesn't have a lot of help around him. Um, but at the same time, he probably shouldn't be getting to the point where you need everything to be perfect to support your defensive coordinator, and therein lies the issue with that hire to begin with, I think. You're there, not maximizing what you're at position. There's way too be. many times I watch the FSU defense, I have no clue what the hell they're trying to accomplish, and that, that's on the coaching of yeah, the defense. Yeah, that's on him. Um, and I don't – you know, it's the next hire is on Jimbo to find someone that either – 
is going to intimately know the defense he wants them to run so he can turn the keys or give him give empower whoever he hires to run the defense they want to run got to have somebody that's going to motivate those because guys if, too, if, if you're going to be Jimbo and you want to be hands-on with the offense that's fine but that means being hands-off with the defense you can't do it all I, I don't think this doesn't seem possible to me FSU's defense is way too hesitant of a bunch for the talent and athleticism it possesses well that's just when you get to personality right I mean that's the personality of the defensive yeah. coordinator of the, of the I, I think that's also the personality of your offseason program yeah I, I think FSU needs to take a real strong look at what they do between the bowl game and their first game of the regular season and how they handle that process, you know, physical development, mental development, and just sort of keeping guys accountable, keeping them in check, and creating that super competitive atmosphere. If you're a super competitive team in practice with guys all gunning for each other's jobs and competing like that, Saturdays come a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And I I think FSU had that. I think that was the magic of the come-up for them, what made them so good. You know, we always hear the stories of Jalen Ramsey walking. He didn't give a damn who was in that secondary. He was coming to take a job, and he lived up to that. I think there's guys of that talent. I think Stanford Samuels is certainly one of those types. I don't know if the atmosphere, the environment fosters that enough throughout the team where it creates a real good product for them. Well, going, taking that and going back to what we were talking about earlier with the freshmen being the ones that are jumping around, I asked you, I looked at you and turned to you during the, the game yesterday and, and asked if trying to remember what Derwin James was like as a as a freshman and what the rest of that class was like around him. I seem to recall like young guys being vibrant, enthusiastic on the Turn on the right sideline. Highway 84 bypass west. Sorry, on the sideline before. Um, I just wonder if it's almost coached out of them to an extent, if it's the culture that is currently there that isn't rewarding that type of behavior because because it is unique to see the entire freshman class or just you know, like we're watching so with the way Clemson is set up uh, is from from the open air press box you can see right into right in front of FSU's locker room not into the locker room but right before they walk in so you can see the calisthenics you can see the guys stretching stuff that you normally don't see I think that they're doing right in the tunnel at Doke uh, before they get out onto the field and then you're watching in, in, them in like pre-hype circles it's Leonard Warner leading that group it's uh, Cyrus Fagan is jumping up and down uh, Zaquandre White is jumping up and down. And, the, like, if you looked in the hype circle before the game, it's Hamza Nazarly, and that's in the middle of it. Um, my concern is is that it doesn't exist, not just that it doesn't exist for the older guys, but I, I seem to remember older guys when they were younger being a little bit more Turn of that right kind of enthusiasm. And the fact that that doesn't seem to resonate for three to four years or five years or whatever uh, is problematic to me. Yeah, I definitely think it's an issue. I think there's also a certain issue with veterans sort of having these preconceived notions of we're going to be a great team, we're going to compete for great things, we're going to be savages, as Trey Marshall said before last offseason. And then those things go away, and they almost don't know how to handle it. Yeah. Like, like their their will and their goals and that, FSU – they love to talk about goals and oh, our goal is, you know, short term. I think they need to get back to where that's truly true. I think players need to understand that it's the next play, the next quarter, that game, and not so much bank on preseason expectations and what they're going to be at the end of the day if they don't live up to that. You know, FSU's not been particularly good at handling adversity the last few years. No, no, they haven't been. Um, 
I mean, in 2014, they were great at handling adversity. That's all they did was handle adversity. Now, it was unfortunate for them that they got into those positions to begin with because they never should have given the amount of talent on that roster. You alluded that, to that earlier, Chris, is that since the 2013 season, since FSU has kind of hit that top, that, that peak, uh, the crescendo, if you will, Jimbo Fisher has struggled to hit the right buttons and have a grasp of what his team is. Uh, with, uh, I'm trying to think, but not the climax. The climax <laughs> would be the top. This is the bottom of, of what this team is. This this team being the, the example of just him having no idea of how to push the right buttons. But we saw that in 2014 when he was talking about an attitude of domination. Uh, that didn't really happen. 2015, he talked about, you know, circling around the mountain and then getting back to the top again. Um, and that, you know, this is about the time where they were supposed to be <laughs> Uh, pushing back up to the mountain hasn't happened. This team doesn't deal with with failure well. Um, credit to them, like they haven't just packed up the bags and quit outside of that Boston College game this season. Uh, and so overall, the season they haven't quit. But but they just they are a group that lack confidence. And I don't see anyone on the staff knows how to overarching instill confidence in them. I don't yeah, know. I, I don't know if a coach if you. If, have to be able to to an extent that's not all on you that's on who you recruit and that's on the off-season program like you said those are all things that are taken care of long before the season begins on uh, the fact that all the time the shit hits the fan when 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 things start going south uh, is an indictment of the entire program not just the coaching in season yeah i think you fix that with changes as coaches and as staffs mm-hmm. you also change it with em- imploring more accountability which in my version is guys who don't need to be here aren't here anymore. Guys who, talking about processing them? Yeah. yeah. Whether it's because they're not going to con- contribute or they're not good for a team dynamic, there needs to be a little more of cleaning up that roster, being a little more aggressive in that regard than FSU's ever been. And, and also it comes down to, you know, the recruiting process to some degree, busting your ass and sort of making that competitive in its own right. There's very few schools that can afford to do this, but I believe FSU is one of them. In recruiting, the most beautiful thing in the world is when you're not recruiting guys, you're basically drafting them. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, FSU has had to settle on guys because they've missed on so many others at a position of need. And they're not settling on bad talent. They're settling on good talent. But the problem is they're reaching that point where that's the only option they have remaining. They need to be better at being ahead of the game. They wouldn't be in this situation at quarterback if they did that. They wouldn't be in this situation at receiver if they did that. Mm-hmm. And their O-line would probably be in a better spot if they did that consistently. And that's plain and simple something they've got to get better at. You, your lifeblood is your recruiting. And recruiting for FSU has been very good, but they've also gotten away with some shortcomings mm-hmm. because the overall ranking of classes has been very good. Their receiver depth is crap. It's horrendous. It's awful. And it was going it, to be bad before the season. I mean, that was kind of what... You banked on a guy like Henry Ruggs last year who's from the state of Alabama and was wanted by Alabama. And when you missed on him, you settled on someone like Tremor and Terry who might be very good at the end of the day. But why was it one for one? Why can't it be we have four guys we want, we have two spots, we're going to take the two we can get? Why did it have to be we really only have one or two spots and, you know, we missed on one and we're only going to take this other one? That's how you get in a predicament of a roster that doesn't have proper development. And FSU certainly in that situation on the offensive side of the ball at a few spots, obviously not at running back, certainly at wide receiver. And O-line's kind of the middle of it. They have a lot of bodies there, but it's not exactly a position that has a lot of dependable depth. Well, that's kind of, I mean, if you look at the way that this roster is kind of formed, and there's a bunch of tight ends, and there's a bunch of offensive linemen, and that means that there's less players at other positions. 
uh, quarterback and wide receiver being two, and man, that this just talk about a worst case scenario with you know positions you couldn't have injuries to. Um, you know, wide receiver and quarterback were, were arguably two of the most important that you really couldn't afford any two, just in terms of experience and depth, uh, and that's what's happened. Uh, the the recruiting has been kind of I mean, you know, you I think this, it may be worthwhile for you, myself, and Josh to have a podcast and kind of just let you guys uh, go and talk about the recruiting philosophies, what what works, what needs to change. Um, you know, one thing I've observed in kind of as that, not outsider looking in, but just someone who doesn't focus on it anywhere near as much as, as either of you do. Um, so I'm giving directions. Uh, there's just not, they don't go after enough dogs, like guys who are just good football players. I, I feel like they settle for prototypes too much. They go for, okay, we got a guy of this size, this speed, this frame. Uh, we view him in this role, this capacity, uh, whatever. And they have these these certain track marks. I think that's the, that's the thing Saban does. Uh, the thing is when you're Florida State is you're just a, a notch below that and you can't just, you know, like you said, draft. You can't just pick out guys. Uh, you can't cherry pick all the time. You can in some situations. It does happen. You can if you're ahead of the game. And then that's been and part FSU of it. And used to be really good at being first on a lot of kids and it kind of gotten away from that yeah. in recent years and it's hurt them. And, you know, a position like quarterback, they've painted themselves into the corner they're now in. A position like receiver... There's no excuse. Yeah. That, that's a position where in the state of Florida, if you go down any back road, you can shake a tree and two talented D1 receivers are going to fall out. It's just a state that has an immense amount of talent at that position. Mm-hmm. For FSU to be in the position they're in is poor. And it, it hurts them that they don't play young receivers. It hurts them that they don't recruit enough receivers. There's a lot of reasons for their issues there. It hurts them that their receivers coach, you know, is kind of a middle-of-the-road recruiter at that position compared to some others that he's competing against. So – just fix it. I mean, for the love of God, FSU's had a lot of issues that have been hidden by a lot of winning in recent years, and now that the winning's gone away, it's abundantly clear that there are things that need to change. It's probably been true for three years, yeah. and I didn't come to light on it till this year, and the reason I came to it is because they lose. They lose way too much, and there's a lot of reasons why they're losing, and they've allowed those reasons to kind of pile up, and it's worst-case scenario. I remember I was at the Orlando Sentinel. Again, my first year was 2013, so I came in seeing like, oh, this thing's rolling. Uh, outside of paying some attention to Florida State, but not as much as as you or anyone else that covered the team regularly. Uh, in 2014, you know, it was kind of this weird. I mean, you know, all the off-field stuff. And then 2015, I remember uh, after the Georgia Tech loss, it was shocking to me how many people came out wanting Trickett fired and wanting Dossie fired. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? You're just coming off of 2013 and 2014. They're like, oh, Dossie's not very good. And I was like, dude, like, he just put Kelvin Benjamin and Rashad Green in the league in back-to-back years. Um, and the argument was like, well, those are the only two. And I said, well, those are also the most recent two. Well, I can admit I was wrong. And, you know, 2015, 2016 happened too. And there's not a draftable wide receiver that is produced in that, that two-year span. Going two years at a time without having a wide receiver drafted at Florida State isn't great. Uh, they have guys on this current roster that are, you know, I think Auden Tate will be drafted. Uh, Nyquan Murray, if he was consistent enough, would be a potentially uh, someone that NFL teams would look at, even though he's small. Uh, but that's neither of those are guarantees. Neither of them are going to get drafted, I think, up to what they could be. And they're certainly not producing consistently enough. And there's a lot of reasons why. But that's an example of, yeah, I think I, I was late to the party on that, too. Um, and it's uh, the data, it, there's too much evidence now at this point. Two guys at that position drafted. And a ten-year span is it? Are we, are we at or eleven? Yeah. We're at ten. We're at ten, and this will at the end be eleven for the draft. It's just too much. Um, it's just not. They're not getting enough return on investment with recruiting, with on-field production, at too many positions, 
and you know for a while that Florida State brand has carried them to go full circle man like other teams other programs have caught up and are surpassing Florida State uh, and, and so you can't just base on your name anymore do you think they can do it it comes back to when you the first thing we said about making changes has to change with Jimbo yeah. Right, right now, I'm not confident that he's able to make enough of the changes to internalize and say, this is what I have to do. Now, maybe right now in the middle of the season, it's not easy to do that, and that's something that's going to have to come in the off season as he truly has time to reflect. Um, but as of right now, what we've seen, uh, whether it be stubbornness with the game plan, uh, an inability to get in a grasp of what you know his, his primary thing, quarterbacks and offense is, uh, his dealing with us in the media, his dealing with fans, I haven't seen enough to say, oh, this guy's willing to change. Um, so right now I would say no. I think they. I think if you make some tweaks, man, like this, this, there's still enough talent and there's still, this is still enough of a brand program to where you tweak and you get things right, like should be winning 10 games. Um, but can you do enough to get over the hump and be a perennial playoff contender without having the perfect, not just prodigious, talented quarterback for that pro-style offense, but the personality to you know, that once-in-a-10-year kind of deal? I don't know. What do you think? I I, <clears throat> I think they can be pretty good, pretty fast again. Yeah. Um, kind of on par with what Notre Dame did this off season into this year. Until yeah. they ran up to the yeah. U. Yeah. Until, uh, yeah. <laughs> but in general, Notre Dame, yeah, they did a 180. They yeah. were putrid a year ago, and this year they are competitive outside of last season. And Florida State certainly had much more talent yes. top to bottom on the roster now. And than Florida State's also a job where there's a lot more ability to be really successful. The ability to go down the street and recruit a few really talented kids is a lot easier than if you're in South Bend, Indiana. But I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. I don't think they're ever going to return to what they did those first few years under Jimbo. I think that's kind of a insanely incredible run that's going to be tough to ever emulate again. I think they can be very good. I think they can be very competitive. I think they can certainly compete for the ACC Atlantic. Um, but I'm telling Chris to take a left. I'm taking him to the back rows. I'm going to show him how, how it's done on the east side of Tallahassee, son. If you, uh, I mean, if you don't hear from me Monday, you know what happened to me. <laughs> oh, I guess what? This podcast isn't live, buddy. <laughs> and they're going to find us like a black box. I think I think they can return to a very high level of success. I'm not convinced they can return to that pinnacle, though. I mean, just, just based on odds, like, yeah. That's it, not yeah, exactly. It's again. an incredibly difficult thing to attain yep. a second time. Yep. Uh, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm extremely interested in the offseason. I'm not going into it with any preconceived notions of what Jimbo will or won't do overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what he does do will say a heck of a lot about what he believes this program's issues were this year and in recent history and what he believes their immediate future can be. And I think it will also say a lot about where he kind of you know sits right now with how he approaches the Florida State program and his process and all that. And if he's redefining his process or kind of sticking to what he believes it has been for so long. I, I think my... my... My initial inclination is it's going to be kind of this hybrid of sticking to this process with things he's comfortable with, but trying to deviate a little bit. And I don't know if that'll work or not. I think if you're going to have to change, you change. You commit fully to the change, and you just dive right in. Uh, you know, how many times in, in, in like sports do you see someone try to hang on to a franchise quarterback when his window's closing or something like that? And 
and, and you try to make it work and patchwork and it doesn't. Sometimes it does work, sometimes it doesn't. Typically it's just a clean cut kind of works. And I'm not saying a clean cut away from Fisher. What I'm saying is from the process needs a lot of wholesale changes. I, I think that's clear. Um, and I think, you know, it, his philosophies in life need to kind of be kind of coexist with that. Uh, need to be someone who is willing to listen to others. Like these, these two are going to go hand in hand. What, what is it? What the Jimbo always says? I want your actions or actions speak so so loud I can't hear what you're saying. Is that? Am I butchering that? Uh, I don't remember the exact saying, but essentially <laughs> words don't matter unless your actions back them up. And that's what we're going to see in this off season is is talk about change or indications there may be change. We're going to know very clearly what he's doing as far as self-reflection, things of he's whether he's stepping outside of his comfort zone and, and where he thinks the direction of this program needs to go based on the hires he makes or the moves he makes. There are at least going to be some. We do know Randy Sanders for sure, uh, without that being officially official, like we know that for one. So there's going to at least be some, uh, and we're going to see if he's willing to deviate from what up until this point has been largely successful for him, or whether he thinks it's just uh, you know a couple years of, of an opportunity you know, injuries or whether he thinks there's actually something that really is needed to be changed. And I don't have a clear idea of whether he thinks yet. I, admittedly, I don't know because he hasn't really showed his hand. Yeah, and there's no past examples with him to point to. This is the first of this type of off-seasons yeah. he's truly had to handle. Obviously, he had the transition off-season when he took over as head coach. Obviously, he had the off-season before the 13th season where so many guys moved up into new jobs, promotional-type jobs. Um, but this is the first time that he's essentially having to revise it all to sort of create a rebirth for his yeah. program, to turn it around from being a you know six and six, five and seven type program, depending on where the chips end up on the end of the day, to trying to be back into what he believes his program should be, which is a perennial ACC championship contender, playoff contender because of that, that can compete for national titles, that can bring in elite, high-level talent, put together a great roster with a ton of future NFL draft picks and compete for the best of the best. And it's going to be interesting what he believes it takes to get back to that and how much he believes needs to change to get back to that. I think those are the two big questions at the end of the offseason is what does Jimbo Fisher thinks needs to change and what does Jimbo Fisher thinks has to come in for that change to happen. You know, that was so well articulated and nicely said, I'm not going to ramble and ruin it. With the Knowles 24-7 podcast, this is Brendan Sinone. Thanks to Christy for joining me. We uh, are looking like we're going to make it out of Dodge without Chris getting a, uh, a ticket. And, uh, yeah, so thanks for joining us, guys. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you later.